Hello, and welcome to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by the Humanitarian AI Meetup Groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, Seattle, New York City, Toronto, Montreal, London, Paris, Berlin, Oslo, Geneva, Zurich, Bangalore, Tel Aviv, and Tokyo. I'm Theodora Gazi, and today I'll be your guest host. I'm a lawyer, and I hold a PhD in refugee law. I've been working in aid projects in Greece for the past five years. I currently work with ActionAid, and before that, I was a data protection officer for the Danish Refugee Council. I'm going to be guest hosting today's interview with Scott Cement, an international rule of law consultant. Scott has worked as a public defender in New York and the Republic of Paolo. Most recently, he served as the chief technical advisor for a rule of law for the United Nations Development Program in Myanmar. He also has extensive rule of law development experience in the Philippines, Afghanistan, and Vietnam. We're going to discuss how technology can support efforts to increase access to justice for marginalized groups in developing countries with under-resourced justice systems. We're going to talk about human rights too, the crisis in Ukraine, and artificial intelligence. Scott, to get us started, Would you like to introduce yourself and tell us more about your background and interests? Sure. Thank you uh, for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity. I am a lawyer. I'm licensed to practice in New York and California. And I started my career, as you mentioned, as a public defender, representing people who are charged with crimes but don't have the resources to hire an attorney. Later, I became the chief public defender for the Republic of Palau, which is a Pacific Island country. And later, I became the legislative advocate for an organization called California Attorneys for Criminal Justice, which is the private criminal defense bar in California. I went into private practice after that. And then after about five years or six years of private practice, I got the urge to broaden my horizons to go international again. And I became the, I forget the title of the position, but it was in Afghanistan for the U.S. State Department. Essentially, I was a consultant for the U.S. State Department, the INL the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement, as the legal aid expert, helping the nascent legal aid organizations in Afghanistan. And I spent about a year in Afghanistan. And then after that, I became the country director for the American Bar Association Rule of Law Initiative. They do a variety of justice sector support programming for USAID, sometimes the State Department, and sometimes other donors as well. When I was in the Philippines, I ran a large office And that's where I first got my taste of trying to introduce an IT system into a justice system. The internet was fairly new. IT was, had just, even smartphones weren't even common yet. I mean, it was an era where people were experimenting with how they could use IT systems in their work. So while I was there, the presiding justice of the Court of Appeals had asked me to essentially automate many of the processes of their filing system at the Court of Appeals. And the Court of Appeals in the Philippines is is quite large. And it's a very litigious country. It was a very um, challenging environment. So what had happened is they had been trying to implement an IT system in their courthouse. They have three main courthouses. And I said, well, it's going to cost money, you know, of course. And so I went to USAID and we we worked out a deal where I would try to revamp their programming because they had awarded a large grant to a private consulting firm to create an automated case management information system, basically. And what happens is when these big consulting firms come in, they tend to bring in 
hate to say it, but they bring in Americans because they're American consulting firms. They bring in Americans who use Excel spreadsheet background software to help courts automate their systems. And, you know, Excel is, is really complicated and it has all sorts of features that are completely useless for most of the things that a court needs to have done. So I took a different approach. And what we did to introduce IT is I got a local Filipino programming firm. You know, we bid it out and we had, but I only wanted Filipino firms to apply. And we selected a great IT company. And, you know, we sat there and we really studied the problem. We didn't start programming and coming up with solutions. We really needed to study the problem. So I had meetings after meetings with every person who works in the court. We had secretaries, the cashiers, um, the judicial clerks, the filing clerks, I mean, everybody. And we asked them, you know, what is it that you would like to see in your system? And what could we do that would actually make it useful? So again, this is a, a country that at the time it had fairly low internet penetration, not many computers, but you know, they were beginning to get it. But the judges, the justices of the courts of appeal, I mean, some of them were pretty computer savvy, but they were the minority. So we knew pretty soon by talking to the judges that the justices weren't going to be using the system hardly ever. They weren't going to be using it because they came from a generation before ours and they didn't really know how to use computers and they didn't care about computers. They could use a typewriter, but even that, they probably handwrote many of their decisions. In any event, one of the biggest challenges working with the presiding justice and the, and the executive counsel of the Court of Appeals was the concern they had about hacking, data hacking, because a lot of the information they have is confidential and particularly with cases involving juveniles and, you know, other sorts of cases that could be. And, and this was also in Myanmar, which I'll get to in a moment. They, I mean, at the time, there wasn't the cloud when I was in the Philippines. We had to do everything on servers. And we tried to convince them to use a state-of-the-art server facility that Microsoft had somewhere in Manila to house all their data. But they felt as if somebody could sneak in in the middle of the night and do a, you know, sort of a Mission Impossible and stick a USB thing and steal all the data, as opposed to their own courthouse, which is a lot looser in terms of security than the data centers that Microsoft had. But setting that aside, so we agreed, so we had to buy servers and all that. Um, and we house them. But the problem with servers, and this is where you start getting into real world challenges with IT, and it will happen to AI as well if it's utilized in the field, is that, you know, to have a server, you have to keep the room air conditioned. It can't ever get above, I don't know, 75 degrees, say. Uh, and I, I don't know if you've ever been to the Philippines, but it's hot. It's hot and muggy. So you have to have a really controlled environment. So you have to have a room that has 24 hour air conditioning, which is expensive. And it has to have uh, dehumidifying properties and things like that. But we were able to, to figure that out. I mean, that was just something we just had to deal with. And, but that's just an example of how conditions on the ground can affect how you implement computerized systems and try to use IT systems in judicial work. So anyway, going back to this story, and I'll wrap it up here, it's a fascinating story and I could talk about it endlessly. We were able to develop this program by mimicking as much as possible the Facebook platform. Because in the Philippines, Facebook was really popular. Even back in 2010, Facebook was fairly new, but it was like wildfire in the Philippines. Everybody was on Facebook. All the clerks, all the secretaries, everybody who put data into the database, case information, the names of the litigants, the type of case, the amount of money in controversy, 
all the dates and all the things that were important were just basic pieces of data. And you needed to get them to input it regularly on a computer that was hooked up to a central server and it could be processed through and filtered through the program we were designing. And getting people to do an extra step at work is really hard. They're using the same system they've used for 100 years, handwriting into a ledger that is bulky and hard and gets wet and it's, you know, but that's how they do it. So we had, they had to do that and input data into a computer. And that was like asking people to double their work. And that's not an easy sell, trust me. So to overcome some of their concerns and some of the clerks and secretaries that were older, they weren't used to computers, but everybody knew Facebook, whether on their, on their tablet or on their computer. So the same, how do I put it, the icons, that we take for granted now, we're not that familiar to people. Like the, the ones that you see on iOS or on Windows, you know, there's the back button, there's the refresh button, there's the save and enter, enter, but you know, there's all these things that you could do that could screw up the information. Once you put in the data, if you start losing data because the users hit the wrong button or don't know what the buttons do, then the whole system falls apart. So you, we had to use buttons and icons that were really familiar to people and really easy. So we borrowed the ideas from Facebook and they used the same sorts of things. So save meant, you know, save and continue. I forget what the what we finally agreed upon, but at the end of the process, it was very simple to use. And by, you know, we, we did the programming of the software next to the clerks, we actually, I didn't have the computer programmers work in their offices very much. They worked in the courthouses. So they're doing all the programming. We had rooms set up for them. And when they had questions, they would bring in secretaries or clerks or judges or whoever and say, does this work? Where do you want the date? How many buttons do you want for this? Is the date on the upper left better or in the upper right? You know, what color do you want for the background? I mean, basic things like that. But by involving them in the process of designing it, they felt as if they owned it and they got proud of it. And then suddenly it became like a competition to see if they could be the first court system in the country to become automated. And it really helped overcome the institutional barriers that people have about using IT systems in their, in their work. And then finally, I would just say the most important thing, and I would say this to anybody who's working in a court system and trying to help automate them, is nothing is more important than creating a database of all the cases that are pending. And then you want to kind of go back a few years and you decide you work that out with the judges but getting that information into a database is key because once you have the fundamentals of all the cases that are pending before a court you can do amazing things you can find out how many criminal cases how many civil cases there are um has there been an uptick in in um, drug offenses how many human trafficking cases how many cases involving women how many cases involving children vulnerable groups Whatever data you put in, you can start cross-referencing and really coming up with treasure troves of information that don't just help affect the justice sector, they affect society at large. So it's it's an incredible tool, but without spending the money and the time to create a database of all the cases, it's really hard to get it off the ground. So we were successful and the Court of Appeals still uses the system we developed back in 2010. And I won't go into our small claims we created small claims courts with the Supreme Court in the Philippines, and we had to develop a similar system for them where they could upload the data and we could find out how many cases were in the small claims docket. And we created a rule for small claims. And they, you know, they suddenly were having thousands of cases resolved in months that used to take years. And the automation was really important and uh, it was fundamental to everything. 
Wow, Scott, you've been around many places. I feel that the same situation you described for the Philippines applies to many countries, even in Greece. People are going to court for any type of dispute. And on the other hand, courts are very hesitant uh, when it comes to changing the way that they are working. You were right that coming up with uh, an efficient solution requires an understanding of the context and uh, involving the users. So in my experience too, state-of-the-art technology is not always the right solution. So do you believe this initial hesitancy towards the use of new technologies is rooted to misconceptions about IT? How could we convince court officials to use IT in their work? Well, you know, overcoming resistance to change is, uh, you know, is an age-old problem in the work system, not just the courts. I, mean, I think you could apply that to pretty much every field of work. Um, you know, people have a set way of doing things and they don't like change. I don't like change. Lots of people don't like change, but change is usually good. And particularly with computer systems, I mean, again, there's a lot of misconceptions about computer systems. And, and in today's world, I think it's a little less. I think we have a both a perhaps a healthier and a more dysfunctional relationship with IT um, in today's world. And I think we're, we're seeing that with, you know, how social media has, you know, affected our lives. When it first started, it was great. Everybody was connected. The dream of Facebook to connect all the people and make a giant global neighborhood. You know, it was true at the beginning, but wow, <laughs> you give us an inch and we take a mile. So, you know, you have to respect the fact that people are hesitant about IT systems. And, you know, even in a developed country like the United States, where I practice, some counties, most of the courts in the, in the United States are run at the county level and not at the state or federal level. 90% of the cases in the, in the United States are, are managed by a county court system. And each county is different. Some have fully adopted IT, others have really buggy IT systems. And for a lawyer who's trying to access the status of a case or to get a docket or basic information, you know, if you go to one county, it's easy to get. You pay $2 or you're a member or whatever, and you can get all sorts of information. You go to the next county over and it's like, no, you can't. You can barely find out when your next court date is. So a lot of it depends on the personalities involved. You know, in, in the Philippines, you know, we had a champion for IT. And fortunately, he was the presiding justice, so he carried a lot of weight. And he's now on the Supreme Court of the Philippines. And because you had a champion for reform, that made the task much easier because everybody kind of knew they had to do it. If you don't have a champion, if you have, um, if the senior leadership of the courts, even though they don't use the IT system that much, are not really 100% on board, you're just going to struggle because there's going to be resistance. So it's really important that you either persuade or you find you persuade somebody to become a champion for IT systems who has the power to sort of implement policies for the court or for for a department of justice or you know prosecution services or would depend it, it doesn't matter you need someone pretty high up to say damn it we're going to automate and i'm going to embrace this stuff and we're going to lobby this the legislature for money we're going to hit up the donor community of you know the international donor community to get funds to do this and we're going to really make it happen. If you get somebody like that, then it, it it really helps. But, you know, you don't always have that luxury. Thank you, Scott. It's very inspiring to see that we can bring change, even if it might be a bit difficult to achieve, especially in the beginning. So the COVID-19 pandemic changed how courts operate. 
along with almost all aspects of governance. How do you see IT being used to overcome challenges posed by the pandemic? I think the most obvious is what's going on in a lot of countries, even, even some of the more under-resourced countries, is the use of remote hearings. Most lawyers have a laptop, and in most countries, they figured out pretty quickly they don't want to have court hearings with everybody risking infecting everybody else, particularly when you have people who are in jail. Most court systems across the world, certainly in developing countries, the majority of their caseload is criminal cases, right? And they have a lot of people in pretrial custody. And nobody wants to go to the jails. You know, I had to get tuberculosis shots and immunization because I worked in the jails. And with COVID, though, you know, pre-immunization and even post-immunization, you know, you don't want to be hanging out in a closed environment with a lot of coughing people who are unfortunately stuck in a unventilated prison or jail. So the use of IT is, is essentially what you would expect, Zoom courts. And... I think, you know, they're here to stay. The thing about IT systems for the, you know, these remote courts, I mean, they're great because they provide you immediate access. In theory, they should speed up cases and they should make it easier for people to handle more cases so lawyers can represent more people and judges can issue decisions quicker and all that good stuff that you would want from the use of automation. And they had no choice. So I think any hesitancy that courts had about using cameras and you know zoom software the software that we're using now to you know conduct hearings was overcome by this fear factor of catching covid which is a pretty powerful incentive for adopting it right so i think there was a, a revolution that you know we're never going to go back there will always be remote hearings now in perpetuity because they're so handy and the infrastructure is mostly there in many countries not all countries um but you know whenever you do something as radical as moving out of the courtroom and into individual basements or, you know, storage closets to conduct your cross-examination of a witness or whatever, you lose something. And you lose that really vital back and forth between, a let's say, a lawyer and a witness or a lawyer and a judge about, you know, gleaning evidence from them and, and even submitting evidence is tricky this way. And also sizing up a witness to see if they're telling the truth or not. You kind of want to be in the same room. So it's not a panacea. Um, not all hearings should be done remotely. Certainly, I don't think a trial should be done remotely. And you know, you have the right to confront your accusers in almost every constitution in the world. You have the right to confront somebody and to testify on your own behalf. And let's face it, a lot of litigants don't have access to a computer, whether they're in a prison someplace or in pretrial detention, God knows where, they may not be able to do it. So it's really important to have a rights-based protocols in place so that not just rich people or wealthy people have access to these remote hearings, that it's accessible to everybody. And there's ways to do this, but it costs money. But if you think about it, you know, a little upfront investment in creating, you know, remote court systems in countries that it's difficult to, to travel, you know, will pay off down the road. Of course, even in, in Myanmar, for example, where I worked for three and a half years, nobody had a laptop. I mean, maybe 5% of the country had a laptop. The judges didn't have laptops. The lawyers didn't. They all had smartphones, but very, very few laptops. They didn't use computers, really, except in the main offices. So imagine what it's like in the country. Very few people, but they all had smartphones. And my IT, we can get into it later if you're interested, but I I worked with the, with the 
court to develop an IT system in Myanmar to capture basic case data, similar to what I was trying to do in the Philippines, um, by using smartphones and only using smartphones and not and not even thinking about laptops. So we skipped over laptops and just used smartphones to input data. And it was pretty good, pretty neat program we developed. So in terms of the remote courts, if you can do it so that people could use their smartphones, that would be really the way to do it. Because, you know, just think, go across in your mind's eye, travel across Africa, travel across Southeast Asia, travel through Latin America. How many people do you see using a laptop who are caught up in the justice system? or know somebody who even has a laptop or knows how to turn it on or let alone set up the webcam. It's not very much, but a smartphone, everybody's FaceTiming each other. So you have less real estate on a smartphone than you do on a laptop, but you can make it work. So the trick is, is to, you know, you have to be able to use smartphones. That means you need a really strong 3G network. And, you know, if you have those basics, you can do it. You know, in the US, you wouldn't use a smartphone. Everybody would use a laptop and in Europe, the same. But in developing countries, forget about laptops. It's, it has to be designed to be used by people who have smartphones. And, you know, I don't know how much data costs, but it's usually not too expensive in, in developing countries. Um, but they have to have access to you know, data and all that sort of stuff. So you really want to make sure, just to get to your point, Theodora, is if you're going to start using IT systems to overcome the challenges of COVID, you just have to make sure that you have rights-based solutions to make sure that everyone has access to the justice services and that you're not cutting corners on due process by turning everything over to the um, video system or the remote court hearings. In Greece, uh, we haven't adopted the um, remote hearings process for all the proceedings or for most of the proceedings. The courts were just postponed for later dates. And uh, in the asylum process, the asylum office closed, closed off and stopped examining claims for the first period of the pandemic. So in Greece, the push to uh, go forward wasn't uh, that uh, revolutionary. There were more steps moving forward to um, make things digital. And uh, our, public, uh, our public offices are better equipped now to be processing claims that come uh, online, but we are not there yet. And uh, when uh, you were talking about uh, the remote trials, I think that it would be fascinating to be able to do it this way. But I was thinking that even if we don't think that it's necessary for a person to have a laptop, so it's a good idea to use phones, and even refugees in Greece, most of them have phones, and mobile phones. So this is also how we do the outreach in the humanitarian sector. Again, many groups don't have access to uh, phones, especially elderly people that are not that acquainted. So I think that this solution can only apply, apply to a specific portion of the population and not elderly or very young people or uh, illiterate. So even in this uh, way, we might be marginalizing some people and not giving them access. Yeah, that's true, Theodora. And that's something you always have to be concerned about. But you also have to understand, you know, I've worked in the field for the last you know, 10 years or so. And I can tell you that most people, the elderly or somebody who's in a remote village, for them to go to a courthouse is you're talking about a week round trip. 
we're talking about getting on the back of an ox cart to get to a place where the bus comes and then to get that bus to take you to the court and then you have to have a place to stay and oops the lawyer didn't show up or the judge is sick and you have to go back and come back in a month and this is not an uncommon feature for particularly vulnerable people who have to use the court system to let's say the child was denied registration at a school because they didn't have the right identity papers right this is a big problem in myanmar where freedom of movement was not guaranteed and so they have to go to a courthouse to get a document you know maybe there's a birth certificate probably not but they have to get something from a court and whether they have to borrow somebody's smartphone and ask them how to use it in order to be able to facilitate the process versus having to you know take your shot at getting into the courthouse on time for a hearing to determine that you know you are the the parents and this child has a right to education blah 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 those are equally challenging so i mean i think we should be embracing it as much as possible and of course there's concerns about marginalized people and and the poor who don't have the latest technology but all in all i think it's a it's a positive development and we should be encouraging countries to embrace it but within you know the realistic parameters of what they can accomplish the most important thing is to make sure that there's stop gaps in place and measures to protect people when the system just doesn't work for some groups you don't want somebody to be denied access to justice because they can't figure out how to turn on a, a computer or, or use a smartphone you have to have systems in place and that's requiring courts around the world to develop you know internal rules and regulations and court procedures to make sure that nobody slips between the cracks and there's a number of these things underway some countries are further along than others but the, this is an opportunity to kind of share best practices internationally and i think we'll get there because we can't go back it's just too convenient it's too cost saving and it is for the majority of types of things that are processed in court you can do them remotely not all i don't think you should ever have a trial determine someone's guilt or non-guilt based on a video conference because you really need to have you know you need people in court so you can for all sorts of reasons but through lots of hearings evidence hearings and other things you can get a lot done so you know i i think if people are smart about it they can really use it systems effectively generally it is all about spreading information sometimes bad but mostly good as we talked about how has your work with the un in myanmar used it to help people become aware of their rights well there were a number of initiatives um that undp was doing and other development partners in myanmar to basically to get out the word about what their rights are as residents and citizens of Myanmar there were online applications and there were i mean people were really addicted to their iPhones like most countries you know when i first got to Myanmar people were just talking on the phone it was amazing i loved it it was like wow these guys use their phones to have conversations but after a few years after i was there they were all playing staring at the phones like everybody else in the world constantly in 2013 Myanmar began its transition to democracy a semi-democracy with the military controlling half the government and civilian government controlling half the government and this is when Aung San Suu Kyi came into power at that time a sim card cost more than a car to get a, a phone they were highly regulated by the time i left it was a dollar to buy a sim card so i mean just in the last few years things changed and of course you know i'm setting aside this is all pre-military coup when i was there 
I left before the coup took over and completely destroyed all the progress we had made. So, but while I was there, there was a lot of outreach programs where they were basically using a number of tools that you would call IT. Essentially, they were just public information campaigns about knowing your rights. They were targeting uh, different segments of society. Some were aimed at women. And they weren't just about, you know, we knew that uh, Know Your Rights campaign is not the sexiest thing to put on the internet. No one's going to spend a lot of time saying, oh, I'm going to learn how my rights. Although in Myanmar, they were particularly interested because they never had any rights before 2013. So suddenly they have a new constitution and they want to know what's in it. So there was a healthy interest by a lot of people. But it was coupled, for example, with a women's health initiative. And there would be tips about pregnancy, how to take care of yourself during pregnancy, how to make sure that you have the right nutrition and access to a, a nurse who might be online through instant messaging. And there'd be a paralegal or a lawyer you could ask to about your rights. You know, if you're pregnant and your boss is giving you a hard time about getting fired or showing up to work pregnant, or what are you going to do after you have the baby? What are your rights under the labor laws? You know, all sorts of things. So we combined all the things targeting a, a vulnerable group, not that women are particularly vulnerable, but, you know, we try to avoid that terminology. But still, I mean, they are more likely to suffer the ills of, of injustice than, than men are. So I think the trick to be successful at this is to not, you know, I, I've done information campaigns about knowing your rights, but I found it to be much more effective when we targeted a particular group, internally displaced persons. They want to know about their rights, but they also want to know about how are they going to get to eat? And when can they go back to their village? And is the fighting still going on that forced me out of my camp or my, my last home? So they need all sorts of information all at once. And you embed you know, rights awareness campaigns into that sort of service. And it's all done by iPhone. And then you advertise it on radios because everybody listens to the radio. So you advertise on radios. And you get the word out through community paralegals who go out and say, here's this app. This is how you use it. And you can get a lot of information out. You get hundreds of thousands of downloads you know, a month with a well-executed information campaign. Thinking about technology and AI, what's your take on the course that the world has taken since the start of the Ukrainian war? For example, the use of satellite imagery allows us to virtually see crimes occurring on a massive scale, including their aftermath, such as mass graves in Ukraine being dug in real time. Could the fact that we can potentially monitor abuse in real time suck the work back towards action? Well, certainly the fact that everybody has a cell phone and they're taking videos all the time, documenting potential war crimes and abuses of, of force and all the horrors that we're hearing about coming from Ukraine and Syria and you know, other places, you know, is useful. My area of expertise is in justice systems. So I'm always interested in how you know, we can monitor these things and using satellites and you know, we can put all this information to a cloud so people can monitor in real time you know, where the soldiers are, are advancing or where some horror show is going on inside of a country's borders. Um, but that's really for a more immediate response, a military response or a civilian police force response or something like that. It's not really something that's going to provide you know, a measure of justice for the survivors of these horrible things. So when I think about the use of technology in holding people to account for the things that they're doing against civilian populations, you immediately start thinking, okay, we're going to document everything. We have cell phones everywhere. So if we can get these people to upload to a international server, to a cloud someplace, all these videos of all these things going on, we can use this evidence in court. But that's not true. 
it's not admissible. You don't have date stamps, you don't have time stamps, you don't have, um, you know, you, you can't authenticate the video. So it's not really admissible at the, ICE, at the International Criminal Court or even in the domestic courts of most countries. Fortunately, there's been a, a solution to this. And I know that the International Bar Association some time ago developed a software program that if you download the app, because you have to download the app first, if you download the app, then what it does is you turn on your, your video and you record something going on um, and it automatically authenticates it. It stores it on a server that can't be touched. It doesn't allow you to edit. It doesn't allow you to do anything to that video. It just documents where you were on the planet and that it took place at a certain time and that it's not it hasn't been touched by anybody. And courts, the ICC accepts videos through this system. And that has led to a lot more positive accountability efforts in countries, war-torn countries, particularly in Syria. Now, when you have all this evidence, you have all these videos, hundreds of millions of videos, or hundreds of thousands, millions, let's say millions of videos, just in Ukraine, and processing this information is impossible. I mean, you can't possibly do it. And this is where AI comes in, and this is where it gets interesting, because there's just not enough people to look at all these hours and hours of videotape to find things that are admissible against a particular person and to build a case, either against an individual or against a state. Now, most war crime prosecutions are against individuals. A state can't go to prison. A state can't be you know, prosecuted in The Hague. Um, you need individual actors. Eventually, are the ones who have to go in. So you need to build a case establishing command responsibility to a general or to a higher up you know, up and down the chain of command in order to prosecute them successfully. So this is where you look at artificial intelligence. And, you know, essentially artificial intelligence, as I understand it, is, is giving computers the ability to make judgments that are more aligned to how humans process information. So if they're taught to look for certain types of things in millions of hours of video, then they can help you narrow down the numbers of videos that a human has to look at to make the final determination if it's actually evidence of a war crime or, or some other horror. And that's good for some. It gets us part way down the road towards advanced accountability for war crimes, but it doesn't get us all the way there. A lot of the war crimes, I mean, there's two classes of war crimes in my, essentially, I mean, there's more, but we think about two. There's the use of weapons against civilian targets, right? Weapons that are not deemed war crime violations per se, right? You use a gun and you're targeting children or you're raping women as a tool of war, these are war crimes, right? The other way to commit a war crime is to use weapons that are prohibited, you know, chemical weapons or um, munitions, bombs, or you know, landmines, those sorts of things. And those sorts of weapons, when they're used, doesn't matter how you use them, you're committing a war crime. And if a military is using chemical weapons or munitions cluster bombs or any of these other horrible things that we've developed to kill each other more effectively, then you know that you've got evidence of a war crime that goes pretty far up the chain of command, right? The soldier who fired the weapon isn't the one you really want to prosecute. It's the one who told him to do it and the one who told that guy to tell him to do it and, and up and down the chain. And the problem is, is these weapons are somewhat illegal and they're somewhat and they're very illicit. And we don't know that much about them. We have some, you know, there's a couple of photographs, for example, of the types of 
artillery that shoots weapons that leave landmines behind, unexploded ordnance on purpose, so that people later on pick them up and they explode. That's a war crime, right? To use unexploded ordnance as, as an offensive weapon. You can't train a computer to identify those weapons unless you have a million images of that weapon. And you don't have a million images of that weapon. Because sometimes these weapons, you only see like three inches of a barrel or you see it from a weird angle. You know, you don't know how these weapons are being used. So this is where synthetic data is playing a really interesting role in going to the next step of AI in terms of holding people accountable for war crimes. And synthetic data is essentially replacing, um, it's used to train computers to identify the use of uh, per se war crime violation weapons by using essentially artwork. You have 3D imagery done by, um, I, I want to say Photoshop, but by artists who know, computer artists, who can simulate a weapon from, you know, every angle and how to, you know, if you only have three inches of a barrel or a piece of a stock or a, a little part of a weapon or of a, of a munition, would you be able to tell if that was the prohibited class of weapons? And this use of synthetic data is really going to be a game changer because it's much more efficient. And once you have that, you can process the million of images that people are taking pictures of with their smartphones and videos. And then if you have enough synthetic data to allow the computer to identify when a weapon is, uh, when a prohibited weapon is being used, then you're starting to connect the dots and building a, a, an effective case in a, in a war crimes tribunal. So I think it's really important that we understand the challenges that AI poses to us and that being overwhelmed with data is making it very difficult for us to, to filter out and filter down to what we really want to use in a courtroom, while at the same time recognize that computers can help get rid of all the non-helpful um, information, while at the same time supplementing it with synthetic data so that you can actually get the computer to be even more helpful and the programs to be that much more effective at helping you identify who and when and what you want to do in an in international tribunal or a domestic tribunal that uh, wants to prosecute its own military for, for war crimes violations. Artificial intelligence is obviously has many potential benefits to helping make people accountable for, for war crimes and atrocities. But like any piece of technology, it, can all, it cuts both ways. We're quite concerned about the use of drones, for example. I mean, artificial intelligence combined with some of those Russian drones. I mean, the Chinese are way ahead of the Russians on this, and they're learning from the Chinese. And believe me, there's something going on between the Russian and Chinese armies about this, where the Chinese are giving them better data about how to use AI. But imagine you put a drone, you know, one of those small self-destructing drones, and you give it a sense of how to identify a certain type of person or a certain type of, um, or a particular individual, or you know whatever you want to target, and you throw it up in the air and it starts hunting it down and it doesn't need human interaction or human supervision and it just goes after that person and looks for that type of enemy target. That's the use of artificial intelligence for bad things. We don't want them to be able to. You, you don't want to cast aside human oversight of your weapons. You know we're also concerned about you know robot automated robots. I mean even the UN last year they tried to make 
try to get a treaty in place or an international convention against the use of, I don't know, robot soldiers. I'm not sure what they called it, but, you know, AI weapons, but they couldn't, right? I'm certain the U.S. was probably against it and probably a few other countries you know, put the kibosh on that. Oh, maybe the U.S. was in support. I, you know, I don't know. I, I go back and forth. It's hard to tell. But the point was they couldn't reach consensus. They'll have to try again, and they may be successful the next time. But And that was the use of AI weaponry. And of course, let's not forget that artificial intelligence plays a really big role in the production of propaganda. So, you know, it cuts both ways. Artificial intelligence can be very useful in the right hands, but it can be evil and destructive in the wrong hands. You're right, Scott. I recently read that data was cropped from uh, OpenStreetMap, a tool that's used to map needs to keep intel from uh, the Russian army. So sometimes some tools and technology that are used for good could be manipulated for other reasons. And people should be careful when they are posting stuff online and about the protection of their own data. Since the inception of the Geneva Conventions, which are the core of international humanitarian law, it seemed like the international community had been advancing towards the protection of human rights. Do you believe that the world has slided towards a less protective stance towards human rights? Is the um, war in Ukraine a brutal example of how far we have gone backwards? Well, I think it remains to be seen, but I would definitely agree that we're ebbing away from the advancements that we had made since the turn of the century. You know, we were seeing tremendous gains for people in the LGBTQ community. We we're seeing tremendous gains amongst you know marginalized groups, ethnic minorities, um, in terms of recognizing their rights and having international protocols in place to protect people. And we were making good progress. But we saw in you know since 2015, 2016, certainly with the election of Trump and Viktor Orban in, in Hungary and um, president of Brazil, and among others, I mean, they're not the only ones, but among others who find the term human rights to be offensive a Western construct or a, a way for, for the United Nations or, or the you know Western liberal democracies to impose their value systems on others. And they resent it. They resent women's rights. They resent you know LGBTQ rights. They just don't like it because they see any advancement of other people's rights as a derogation of their own and a diminishment of their own status. And we're still fighting this. And this is going to be a struggle, I think, for, for this entire generation, if not the next generation as well. You know, who's going to win? The forces of democracy, the forces of light, or the forces of darkness? And right now, you know, it's a battle. And what's going on? We're seeing it in, in Ukraine, certainly. But I think we should all be heartened. The amazing international response to support the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian people in this fight against a very dark force it's been very inspiring. Uh, we can't discount the fact that nobody's sending in soldiers, but my goodness, I mean, when Switzerland <laughs> declares it's not neutral anymore, and Switzerland is taking sides, you know that they feel a sense that, hey, listen, you know, a lot of the uh, progress that has been made in the world on, towards human rights is threatened by what's going on in Ukraine. And I think we can see that there are trends fighting back against this tide of darkness towards human rights. So, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic, but it's it's going to be a battle because, you know, they don't constrain themselves 
with convention and rules and tradition. For them, it's the ends justify the means, regardless if the means involve destroying people's human rights or using weapons of war, whatever, to accomplish your goals. And the Western liberal democracies, the people who are trying to combat that, constrain themselves with their own rules about what can be done. But we're seeing that, you know, at the beginning of the Ukraine war, you know, we were just saying, uh, we'll give them defensive weapons, we'll, you know, provide humanitarian aid. But now it's been two months or so, and we're sending in howitzers, you know, and attack helicopters, and the Germans are providing, like, heavy military equipment. I think that the higher-ups in this world see this as a significant threat and have decided that, listen, this is the red line. This is it. If it's going to happen, we have to win. The Ukraine people have to win this war, and we will give them every tool we have and make sure that it happens, including howitzers and attack helicopters, which two months ago was not even on the table, wasn't even considered. So I think, you know, I think we're trending in the right direction, but again, fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a long battle. So in your opinion, what sort of call to action should the humanitarian and human rights communities be making right now? Do you want to give a shout out to any initiatives which are working in the right direction today? Well, I think there's certainly the response of the international community and to the neighboring countries of Ukraine towards the refugees, million plus refugees pouring out of Ukraine is very heartening. There's no question that the generosity of the surrounding countries, Poland, Moldova, the bordering countries and the countries that are accepting refugees has been tremendous. And they've been you know, very welcoming for the displaced persons. So I think the initiatives that are small and large that are supporting refugees or helping people escape the battle zones is really amazing. I mean, you hear about these stories of, you know, some guy decides I'm going to buy a van and drive through Ukraine and pick up people who need to get the hell out of town and drives them to some safe zone. And just one guy with a van or two people with a van. So, you know, those little initiatives that somebody's taking up at risk to their own life are pretty awe-inspiring, as well as, you know, the larger organizations, whether it's UNICEF or UNHCR or Save the Children. I mean, you can go down the list of the humanitarian organizations that are leaping to the cause to, to help people in Ukraine. You know, when this battle is over and Ukraine has to be rebuilt, if things are going to, you know, the international community will hopefully respond appropriately. I mean, the, the damage being done to the Ukraine infrastructure and to, you know, all those apartments being destroyed and the roads. And I mean, just think about what it's going to take to rebuild that country. My goodness, they're leveling cities where millions of people live. So, you know, we'll have to see how the international community responds. I mean, it's not quite time for that, but we do have to start thinking about funding. You know, how are we going to get the resources to help rebuild Ukraine? And even before the war, they were having, they had issues with corruption in their governance and they were a struggling democracy. They weren't going to be a member of NATO because they couldn't overcome their corruption. They had rule of law issues, frankly. Ukraine was a major recipient of international donor support to improve their justice systems and to ferret out you know, judicial corruption and, and prosecutorial corruption. And these efforts will, will have to continue. Corruption is not going to go away just because the war is over. But, um, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. There could be a, a reawakening of the spirit of community and togetherness that can combat some of the corruption issues that were plaguing Ukraine from before the war. Thank you, Scott. 
Before we close, we'd like to ask all of our guests to think about a futuristic AI application they'd love to see exist and to describe it to us. What would you love to see? Well, it would be nice if AI could somehow overcome the, the deep-rooted problems of corruption in justice systems. I mean, I'm not sure how, but there could be a way. If you could limit the ability of people to influence the court proceedings extrajudicially, either by bribing a judge, for example, or bribing a clerk to put their case on top of a pile so that it gets heard for, further, or bribing a clerk to bury a file so it never gets heard, or you know, the president of a country or calling a judge and saying, if you rule this way, we're going to cut all the funding to your courthouse. There's all sorts of judicial corruption issues that undermine integrity of the courts, undermine public confidence in the courts. And artificial intelligence may be able to identify better means to identify when a judge is being influenced extrajudicially. It could come through the form of sophisticated programming that can spot anomalies in judicial decisions that could be called out for attention. Again, no matter how good AI gets, at the end of the day, the human factor is what's important. And you know, if there's no major resolve by the people at the highest levels of governance, both in the judiciary and the executive, to root out judicial corruption or corruption in the justice system, that even the most sophisticated AI isn't going to be used properly because it's just going to, you know, be something that uh, isn't, um, how do I put it? There can be reports made to investigative authorities that say, look, this judge, I saw this judge take a bribe. But if nobody wants to prosecute the judge or they're afraid to prosecute the judge, it's not going to happen. So AI can only take you so far. But ideally, it would make it more and more difficult for people in positions of power to get away with trying to influence what happens in the courtroom. That was How's a that? great answer. Okay. Great answer. Brent, do you have any other questions for Scott? No, it's funny. Um, Theodora, I was actually wondering, it must be interesting to ask that question to other people, but you never get a chance to answer it yourself. So um, tell us what futuristic AI application would you love to see? You know, since you're a lawyer yes. as well. Uh, I think that we've discussed this before, not for AI, but um, to be honest, I think that in, in Greece, we are very far away from uh, using and utilizing new technologies and big data and AI for humanitarian aid. I mean, when we first started, we were putting in Excel all the data of the refugees that uh, were um, living in the camps, and this was thousands of data. So as a, uh, their data protection officer, I was struggling just to tell them to put passwords, not save them in their personal computers. It was a mess. And we are not even talking about uh, when uh, Scott was describing his experiences from all these different sectors and developing countries. I was thinking that we are supposed to be developed, but we have very similar issues. So a future application. Ah, I've seen some initiatives. I can be inspired by them, um, like predicting migration flows is a very interesting uh, initiative. So um, be, given the experience that we already have, the data that we have about why people are migrating, 
uh, in different contexts. I've seen very interesting initiatives combining technology and humanitarian work to predict these flows of people by understanding the reasons they are moving, weather conditions, the past experiences. And I understand that this is something that is being, it's not very futuristic because it's being um, researched right now. But I would believe that it's, it would be very interesting to be able to predict this before it's happening or at least predict the needs. So you couldn't have perhaps predicted the war in Ukraine, but if maybe if this tool could help see the needs of the population in Ukraine, it's difficult because we don't have pre-existing data, but in other contexts like in Africa, where we know that this, uh, that specific um, crisis keep happening, using the data we already have is very interesting, like satellite images of uh, floods that are coming, how COVID has impacted specific um, areas. It's uh, very interesting. So I think that would be something about predicting the needs. Hey, Scott, do you have any thoughts on that now that you're interviewing Theodora now? No, sure. I think what she said is very interesting. The idea that, uh, that you know, predictive modeling for migration routes and services that are going to be needed are really important because you identify, you know, many refugees are not, it's not from war-torn countries, it's environmental refugees. I mean, we're going to see that more and more in the coming decades. And we'd like to be able to predict those, but, but you know, climate is a particularly tricky thing, but are, we're getting better and better at it, modeling climate scenarios. So we can see, okay, my goodness, it's going to be 130 degrees for the next six weeks in Islamabad or whatever, or some parts of, of India, and the people are going to be running. They're going to be getting out of town and they're going to be very thirsty. It could be really hot. And, you know, we can model that better and better now with the use of AI and we can respond. Hopefully we can respond accordingly. But I think the, our ability to, it would be better if we weren't just addressing problems, you know, coming up with cures for refugee issues as opposed to preventing them to begin with. And I don't think we're really doing much right now to prevent that. I mean, it's clear from everything we know that there's going to be, starting very soon, if it isn't already happening, we're going to see environmental refugees escaping the equator zones and fleeing north and south to get away from the heat, fleeing flood-prone areas. I mean, think about Bangladesh. You know, Bangladesh is like the third or fourth most populous country in the world, like 140 million people. It's huge. And I think it's in the top, it's certainly in the top 10. It may even be in the top five, but it's a flood. The whole country is a, is a floodplain. And, you know, as oceans level rise, it's going to be less and less livable. So where are they going to go? So we're going to have to really figure this stuff out. But certainly I think AI can help us at least get to the point where we can be much more targeted in our relief efforts than perhaps we were in the past. Also, when you're talking about uh, environmental refugees or environmental migrants, I'm thinking of the legal aspect of this brand, which is not that interesting maybe to you, but the fact that you know that an environmental refugee, it's not a refugee. They don't fit the yes. Geneva Convention. Yeah. So there is whole debate that we have uh, people that are displaced and forcibly displaced, but in reality, they don't fit this uh, term 
that this sure. protective regime that the international um, sure. community has done. So this is also another discussion that we may need to also protect them legally with another in instrument. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Let's hope. And when this reaches Europe or when these refugees need to be given a protective regime, I think that for now, since this is not something that has come to our legal systems, this is why the legal world hasn't resolved this. But it's interesting that we have we recognize this as a phenomenon, but in uh, our um, legal systems yet, we don't have uh, the appropriate way to ensure their uh, protection. So, Scott, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much for joining us. This brings this edition of Humanitarian AI Day to a close.